Bill goes up to Mark, and Bill reminds Mark of that first day that they met. And he says, you know, Mark, did you ever wonder why I was carrying all of those things home? And he says, you see, I didn't want to leave a mess behind for anybody to clean up. I had taken some of my mother's pills, and I was going to use them to commit suicide. But when you picked up those books for me, and we shared those moments together, I realized that I would regret that, that I would miss moments like these and moments afterwards. You see, Mark, when you picked those books up for me, you did more. You saved my life. And you see, the, the, the small acts of love that we can do can change a person's life. But the ultimate act of love that God did on the, on the cross saved the world. The entire world. He said, all of that wickedness, all of that badness, everything, I'm going to nail it to a cross and I'm going to die for you because I love you. God is love. Right, and that's sort of what you expect me to say. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. God is love. He died for us. He conquered death in his resurrection. Bam, sermon done. We can go home satisfied. God is all loving. And you know, that is the ultimate testimony of God's love. But I, I've really been reflecting on love. And uh, it's funny. So I was watching my son, Rogan, eight months old. He was eating. And if you've been to an amusement park or wherever they have these, sometimes at restaurants with a little claw machine, where you, you know, put 50 cents in or a dollar and you control the claw with a joystick and then you hover it over whatever you want. It clumsily just goes down and, and very loosely grabs onto the thing and if you're lucky, starts to pick it up and, of course, it will drop it. Um, that's my son. He, he's got the peas on his... Uh, plate and he just is like I'm going to get it so much patience and he goes down clumsily and got it right and then he drops it <laughs> and he's trying so hard and, and then when he's lucky he can get it to his mouth and then that's how do I get what's in my hand into my mouth from this you know and I'm putting it in. And, and, but when he does get it in his mouth, he's as excited as we would be if we finally did get that stuffed animal or whatever it was. And I thought, you know, how could God not love us? We're so cute. <laughs> We're so clumsy, right? But then, but then I, I, I read the news. And I hear about Brandon Sargent. A five-month-year-old infant who was dropped off at his parents' house in a car seat. And the parents take the car seat and put it in the crib. 
And then they don't move him. They don't feed him. They don't change his diaper. No food, no diaper change, no love for eight days. And Brandon died weighing only two pounds less than his birth weight. And then I say God is all loving, and it feels harder to say. And then I think about Robert Haskell, who dresses up as a delivery man to get into his ex-sister-in-law's home, and he ties up the family, and he executes them. But one, one of them survives by playing dead, 15-year-old Cassidy. And now she's left with the grim finality of a family loss. And I say, God is all loving, and it feels harder to say. We think about the Sandy Hook shooting, where with wanton indifference and unspeakable brutality, Adam Lanza goes into an elementary school and murders 20 children and six staff, and I say, God is all loving, and it feels harder to say. And I think about how exceptionally hard it must actually be to love us. See, God didn't look at us, though, and say, you know, I'll love you, but first there's a lot of things that need to change. You're going to need to fix all of that ugliness. You're going to need to fix all of that cruelty, all that suffering that you cause on people, the untold amount of cruelty. It's unfathomable. You're going to need to change. You're going to need to stop with the murder. Stop with killing your own children. Then, then I'll love you. No. Instead, Jesus said, well, Paul in Romans 5, 7 through 8 says, For one will hardly die for a righteous man. Though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. See, it reminds me of a, the Black Eyed Peas song. I'll read the lyrics. I'll read it to you. It says, People killing, people dying. Children hurt, and you hear them crying. Can you practice what you preach? Can you turn the other cheek? Father, 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 help us send some guidance from above because people got me, got me questioning. Where is the love? Where is the love? Where is the love? Where is the love, the love, the love? It just isn't the same. Old ways have changed. New days are strange. Is the world insane? If love and peace are so strong, why are, the pieces, why are there pieces of love that don't belong? Nations dropping bombs, chemical gases, filling lungs of little ones. With ongoing suffering as the youth die young. So ask yourself, is the loving really gone? 
So ask yourself, is love really gone? The wickedness that we read about or we hear about or see about is so potently and vividly displayed in our minds when we read it. But memories over time do fade and things do eventually numb in our hearts. But the reality of those news clippings are seen in perfect detail by God. We talked about his all-knowing nature, that he can keep things at the forefront of his mind, that he can know everything simultaneously in perfect and vivid clarity. He sees all of that suffering. He sees the baby struggling to, to pick up the food, but he also sees those who don't have it. He sees all of our hidden evils. He sees all of the atrocities, past and present, things unknown, unsaid, unheard. And yet, he still demonstrates his love for us by dying. Who does that? Who would do that? God did. God does. John says it in 1 John 4, 9 and 10. He says, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. This love is not, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. But despite what all of God has done for us, you may be like me and still have a few questions. And so the first thing I want to talk about is God is all loving and suffering exists. God is all loving and suffering exists. Because sometimes those things feel like they might be in intention. In uh, my first year of master's work at George Fox Seminary, I read a book by Gustavez Gutierrez called On Job, The Suffering of the Innocent. It was a commentary on the book of Job. And Gutierrez um, is a theologian who lives in Latin America, um, but is, is very integrated uh, in, within that society and, and sees all of that suffering. And... Um, he begins by talking about the book of Job, which if you haven't read it, you should. But basically, Job is um, a man after God's own heart. And Satan says to God, you know, he wouldn't love you if his life wasn't so good. And God says, that's not true. He would love me no matter what. And so God allows Satan to not take Job's life, but to um, cause some suffering to occur. Basically, Job's life goes from richness to poorness. It goes from health to illness. He goes from having a family to having none. And one of the things that Gutierrez picks up on is the idea of disinterested faith. It's not the idea that you're just no longer interested in faith, but it's the idea that we can still have faith in God despite 
our outward circumstances. And Job is an example of this because he lost everything. He had this malignant skin disease. And, and his wife says, you need to curse God and die because this is bad. And Job says, am I going to worship God only during the good times and not the bad times? And he loses everything, but he never abandons God in action or in language. Gutierrez notes that the book of Job, is, it has a specific purpose in mind, but you can also see that it has been written and drenched in tears and reddened in blood. The reality of, of Job's suffering is so real. And it's interesting because Gutierrez, is, when you read his commentary, you see sort of the same thing in his writing. Because he's not like other scholars that I'm used to reading who will gladly sacrifice meaning in pursuit of its details. No, Gutierrez is really invested in, in the work that he's writing, and you can see it in how he writes and how he is very attuned to the suffering of his own people. Uh, another theme that we see in Job has to do with temporal retribution. Temporal retribution is the idea that if you're rich or you're poor, if you're healthy, unwell, if you suffer or you're carefree, you are that way because of your deeds. And we see that in some, of, uh, some forms of theology today, like prosperity gospel, which says, you know, if you just listen to God in the right way, you're going to be rich. So if you're poor, you're not really jiving with God. Right? But that's, that's what Job's friends are, are trying to say to Job. So Job uh, calls his friends sorry comforters because they come to him and say, look, we're sorry that this is happening to you, but it's because of something you did. Right? You got you to gotta admit your moral failings here because you're being punished. And the book of Job calls um, Job guiltless in, in there. And um, it's funny, there's a saying that goes, a man with an experience is never at the mercy of a man with an argument. And that's Job in this situation because he's like, I, I didn't do anything, but I suffer nonetheless. And his friends are talking in circles like, yeah, 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 yeah. But you did something wrong. It's like, no, no, I didn't, I didn't. And these really long speeches, but they go in circles and circles about, you know, we see what you're saying, but you're wrong. You did something wrong. But what we notice in, in Job is that he's, his defense is coming from himself. He's like, I know I didn't do anything. I'm innocent. But as you read along, you see Job kind of switch gears. He, he, know, he starts to recognize that this idea of temporal retribution, that everything is as it is because of our deeds, he says, but wait a minute. There, there are children who suffer all the time. There are all of these innocent people that suffer all the time. And he, starts, he stops saying, I'm innocent, and he starts saying, there is the suffering of the innocent. And that's real. 
And so his voice is no longer his own, but he starts speaking out for all of the innocent and saying, a lot of people suffer. And his question turns sort of to why. God, I trust you. I love you. But why? Don't you love me? And in the ending chapters, uh, God comes down, kind of shoes the friends like, you're all wrong. And the answer that we get isn't always the best answer. But God basically says, what I do is beyond you. My ways are higher than your ways, as Isaiah says it. He says, I am incomprehensible. And so we're just sort of left with the idea that we won't always have answers. But that doesn't indicate that there are no answers. See, by God showing himself to be incomprehensible, he says, one, I love you, but two, sometimes you're not always going to see how I'm working that into my grand plan. You're not going to see it always. You don't have the right perspective. I um, have used this um, analogy before of a man who's put into an induced coma because of how bad um, he's, he's doing. And um, he wakes up during this induced coma to see that there's a woman above him cutting into him. And he's going to think, that is evil. Like, cut it out. Well, pun not intended. Um, <laughs> You know, quit what you're doing. And, uh, <laughs> and then he might find out that, you know what, that, that woman is actually a doctor. And what she's trying to do is remove all those malignant masses that are built up in his body so that he can live. And so what he thought was evil came from bad perspective. Because, in fact, what this doctor was doing was really good. So we're not always going to have answers, but if we, if we just jump and say, God, what you're doing is wrong, we're, we're speaking from a place of really no perspective. But we do have a responsibility to adjust our hearts, to render them attuned to the suffering of the innocent. Because how many people suffer not because of the malevolent, because of the evil, but because of the inaction of Christ's followers? God's incomprehensibility does ultimately eliminate the tension between God's goodness, his, his love, and suffering. It also shows that we really don't have like a supra-divine metric to judge God. But what we do know, we see in Romans 8.28, it says, 
And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And 1 Corinthians 10.13, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way so that you can endure it. Like I said in my previous sermon that God is big and we can't see around him. We can't see all of his purposes. His ways are truly above our ways, but he has our best interests in mind. Any, any box we have will uh, turn out being too small for God, so there's really no use in trying to put him in one. So God is truly incomprehensible, but he is working all things for good. And when we suffer, he will give us a way to endure it. But there is another aspect, and it's my second point, is that God is all loving and we are free. Because so much of the suffering that we see comes because God desires us to love him. In, in high school, I did some crazy things. I was in a video editing class. Basically, we would film, we would edit, and we would make many movies. This was a great learning opportunity, despite how I used the class. Basically, <laughs> we were high school boys, and we would do things like, uh, one time we put a, a wireless speaker in a garbage bag, and put it in a garbage can on the corner of Old Town Sherwood by a popular market called Rainbow Market. And we were across the street at a coffee shop. It's not there anymore, but it was a coffee shop. And we had the wireless microphone. And when people went by, we tried to convince them that someone was stuck in the garbage can. <laughs> or somewhere. So they would go by, and you'd say, hell. They start to walk away. Help me, help. And we would do that all the time. People would ride. One guy almost fell off his bike because he went, he was going by and we're like, help! You know, I was like, you know, and they f find out it's a garbage can, but we tied it up in, in, in a garbage bag, so they're searching around. It's like, oh, there's nothing. Cops didn't like that. Um, <laughs> So we got in trouble there. We got, we got to know the, their faces over that time. Um, in fact, they don't let kids go off campus anymore, and it was because of us. Um, but one time, uh, we had a great idea, a great idea that turned out to be an exceptionally bad idea. Basically, we said, we're going to tie up one of our friends, and we're going to do it like intensely, right? He's going to look like I'm kidnapped. Um, we're going to go to people's houses that we know. We're going to throw them onto their doorstep uh, or in their lawn. We're going to ring the doorbell and we're going to peel out when we see them open the door and see this person on their lawn. 
<laughs> we got some funny reactions like, whoa, like what's going on? And I had to leave because I had things to do, places to go, people to see, you know, popular guy back then. Um, so I leave, but my friends are like, we're going to do one more without me. And they think that I'm the lucky charm because of what happens next. Um, they're like, we're going to do one more. We're going to go to Fred's house and do this. I'm pretty sure Fred lives here. Wrong. Fred did not live there. In fact, someone who lived there, we didn't know at all. So they do this, and the guy freaks out. What's going on? So he goes and gets his firearm. Not good. He says, don't worry, I'll get him. And then he says, I'm going to call every cop in Oregon. And I think he did. We got tactical units. We've got canine units. We've got every Sherwood cop in the world right there. Like, I'm retired, but I'm going to come. I'm going to help this out. Like, so block shut down. This is not good. My friends got a share in that reprimand, and I was so fortunate to miss that. (laughs) But shortly thereafter, our privileges to go off campus were revoked. With our freedom, we make bad choices, sometimes very frequently. Um, In Deuteronomy 30, 19, it says, Today I give you the choice between life and death, between blessings and curses. Now I call on heaven and earth to witness the choice you make. Oh, that you would choose life so that you and your descendants might live. God doesn't make our choices. And out of our choices, we have caused untold suffering. But God, above all else, wants a genuine relationship with us. He wants us to willingly love him. Jesus at the Last Supper wants his sacrifice to be remembered. God wants us to remember him. God is love, and we only know God through love. See, God can't force us to love him. That's just not how relationships work. It's like cats. You can ask Bryn the story about what she did to one of my cats. But I had several cats. Don't ask her that. Uh, I've had several cats over my lifetime, and they're incredibly frustrating because you'll pick them up and you put them on your lap and you'll pet them and they're still just trying to get away and you're like why won't you love me and and they'll walk away and they'll stare at you and you'll be like come here come here and they give you that stare like yeah right loser (laughs) you don't have food and I don't care so I'm getting out of here and and, uh, I had had one cat uh, princess who I would uh, I would hold her face to my face when I was younger until she licked me and uh, see if, if God loved us and was all loving like I loved cats it would look more like him pinning us down and trying to fit our entire head into his mouth that's what it would be like but God doesn't Love us like I love cats, fortunately. I'm not the cat whisperer. 
He wants us to join him willingly in relationship. So we can choose that. Or we can live a life of sin and disobedience. We can live without love and we can cause the world to suffer. But I'll tell you, we can glimpse God's love when we love. So my last point is this. We see God's love when we love. I'm gonna read all of 1 Corinthians 13. It's great. If I speak in tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It, does, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, which is in part, disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And know these three remain. And now these three things remain. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. The greatest is love. When my family and I were flying out to Massachusetts to see my extended family, we had a layover, I don't remember where, but unfortunately, our, light, our flight in was just, it was so late that we missed our next flight. So the airline, of course, is working it out. But the problem is, is that they could get us on a, the next flight, but we were, there were one seat short. So my dad, of course, being the great man that he is, he said, you know what? You all go. I'll stay. We'll figure it out. I'll get on the next one. And I said, Dad, I, I want to stay with you. So I volunteered to stay with him and said, I don't, you know, that's no fun to do that by yourself. So all of my family left on that flight. Me and my dad stayed together. And so the lady is, you know. And she says, got it. It's going to leave in 10 minutes. It's across the entire airport. Okay, so we have to run. And we're running all across the entire warehouse or the airport because we don't want to, to miss the flight. And, you know, I'm a college student, young college student at the time, and I have the endurance of youth. And I look at my dad, and he's huffing and puffing. He's making it, but 
he's exhausted. And I have my backpack and I have my carry-on and he's got his carry-on and I have a, a free hand. And so I look at my dad and I say, Dad, let me carry that for you. Let me carry it. So he just shakes his head. He hands me it. And we go. And we make it. It's so small. So insignificant. But I remember that. I remember that because of how much I love my dad. And how cool it is to participate in a love that you realize when you do it is bigger than yourself. It's so much bigger. I'm sure that I had faith that we would make it to Massachusetts eventually. And I'm sure that I hoped that we would make that next flight. But it's the love that I remember, the love that was burned into my very bones. I remember another story at, uh, at Costco, to stay in line with tradition here. I, uh, I was cashiering, and uh, as, as cashiers you always have an assistant too, someone who helps box it all up for people if they want one. This lady comes up who had probably woken up on the wrong side of the bed for the last 35 years. And it's the kind of lady you want to just literally grab and just shake and yell at and say, why are you so bitter? Why are you so mean-spirited? I am a human being. Please talk to me like I'm a human being. But I'm at Costco. So I greet by name. I make eye contact. And I smile. And you just kind of take the abuse. But I remember, where is this item? Where did you move this item? Oh, you don't know. Of course you don't know. You don't know anything. I know. I'm sorry. I, I don't know anything, man. I don't. I don't. I'm stupid. I know you are. Right, and... She slides her card because the transaction's going to be over, thank goodness. Why is it asking for a pin? This is a credit card. Credit card! You know what that means? I say, yes, ma'am, I do. The problem is we don't take Visa credit card. See, we only take American Express. You could use debit or cash or check. So she dumps her whole purse out. She's looking for cash, and she's counting her cash out over and over again and digging through her bottomless purse. I think that's the case for all women. And just going through it, and it's like it's never ending. But she's searching, and she counts out the money again, and she's $5 short. So she counts it again. It's like, I think it's $5 short, you know. But she keeps doing that and then going through her purse. And then when, when she's doing that, I don't, I don't know why, but I, I took my, my wallet out <laughs> under where I'm cashiering, and I 
grab $5. It's all that I had in my wallet. I never carry cash. As you can see, it's all that I have in my wallet. Um, and my assistant, she can't see, but my assistant can see. And he's like, what are you, what are you doing? And I pick up her money that she has on the counter, and I kind of grab it like this, and, and I count it out. And I say, miss, I think that you miscounted. It's all here. And she, she says, in a tone 38 decibels lower, oh, I don't know how I could have done that. And so I finish the transaction, I get her card and a receipt and I hand it back to her and I say, thank you so much. And she stands at the end of the register, she's getting her stuff back and she just is not moving. And then she looks at me and I'm helping the next member of the time, but I can, I can see this at the corner of my eye, and she just shakes her head, and she leaves. And when she leaves, my assistant looks at me, and he says, why did you do that? That lady was so mean. And I said, I don't know. <laughs> I said, I don't know, but I think it worked. And what's cool is that a week later, the managers hand me a, uh, a appreciation notice and a copy of a comment card from a member. And all it says is, I was having a really bad day, and Matt made money appear. He was kind, he was patient, and he made my day. We don't always get to see the positive turnouts of our love. Because even if she didn't leave a comment card and she left and I never got to see that again, there's something radical, something amazing about participating in God's narrative of love. Because God loves us. And when, when you do things like that, you glimpse and you know that God is all loving. You know it in your bones, in your heart, in those deep parts that we don't have words for. There is suffering in the world. There is a Satan who prowls around like a lion seeking prey to devour. The world is broken. It is literally shivering in the cold and bitter reality of sin and all its ugliness. But God's ways are incomprehensible. We must be as Job was, despite our circumstances. We must know that God is a God of love and He plans to work out all things for good, even if we can't see it now. The world is shattered into pieces by the sin of our own bad choices. So much of the hurt and suffering is caused by us. 
we can take steps to help put the pieces back together if we love as God loves. But when we stand back and we reflect on the world as it is, we will be reminded of the God in Isaiah, the God of the Bible, the God of love who has engraved our names upon his palms. He didn't wait for us to fix ourselves because we never would. He did not let evil prevail, but instead he saw all of the wickedness, all of the evil, and he said, you know what? I will die for it. I will nail it to the cross, and he did that for us. So when we hear stories of neglected children who die at the behest of their loveless parents, we can remind ourselves of the God who said in Isaiah that even a mother could forget her child. But I will never forget you. See how I've engraved your name on the palm of my hands. We have hoped that that child is in a place of no more suffering with a father whose love is unsearchable. And saying God is all loving is a little bit easier. When we hear about the murderer, Robert Haskell, who takes the lives of an entire family, we can be reminded of the hope that Christ gave Cassidy. That 15-year-old survivor who lost her mom and her dad, her brothers and sisters, at, at their remembrance. She quoted Harry Potter and said, happiness can be found even in the darkest of all times if one only remembers to turn on the light. And she said, I know that my mom, dad, Brian, Emily, Becca, Zach, they're in a much better place and that I will be able to see them again one day. When Cassidy was plain dead, we can remember that she said it felt as though the angels were with her, putting their hands over her mouth, whispering her to be quiet and saying God is all loving. It's a little bit easier. If we remember the cross in all all that we do, saying God is all loving is a little bit easier. Please pray with me. God, you are a God of love and we get glimpses of it sometimes and sometimes we're overwhelmed by it. We thank you so much that you were able to see past all of the bad stuff that we do, that you were able to conquer that on the cross, God, that you were able to say, yes, you're sinners, yes, you're bad people, but I will die for you. God, we just thank you so much for being all-powerful, for being all-knowing, and for being all loving. I just pray that we would go forward today 
and be able to walk in that love, God. And God, when we are having trouble seeing it, that we will trust that it's there working behind the scenes, God, and that you will work it all for good. We love you so much. Thank you for being a father who loves us. In your precious and holy name, amen.